Hey, welcome back. This is part two of the tuition crisis, which will address the problem from the school's perspective. I want to start off by discussing an interesting new initiative that's just getting off the ground in one from community. This organization's main objective is to create a citywide endowment fund for all the Jewish schools in their city. They also have a more short-term goal, which is as follows. If families opt to participate, they give a percentage of their charity to this organization. There's a four-year rotation where each year, a quarter of the members get a significant tuition break so that they're not paying more than 20% of their income in tuition. That's one idea for one community. I spoke with a number of people involved in the industry, and you're going to hear a very multifaceted approach to tackling the tuition crisis. I speak with Mari Litwack, head of the OU's Teach Coalition. His job is to bring awareness of the government funding that's available for schools and to help schools tap into the funding through everyone's direct involvement, through our votes and representation. Then I speak with Rabbi Yaakov Nussbaum, a business consultant. We have a lively conversation about how to plan a school's finances as well as discussing the endowment dilemma. The dilemma is as follows. Schools should ideally set up endowment funds, but how important is it really? And furthermore, how practical is it? After speaking with him, we're going to hear from two private schools that found very interesting solutions to the tuition dilemma. Stay with me as we explore this crisis together. We're going to start with Mari Litwack, head of the OU's Teach Coalition. He discusses how he was introduced to the tuition crisis and what he does about it. I remember very vividly this being discussed at the Shabbos table and parents talking about it and my parents talking about it, their friends talking about it. It was something that we were all extremely concerned about. And so when I had my first child about 15 years ago or so, I was sort of in a panic mode. And so from then on, it was something I really cared about. And I started, I was trying to start an affordable high school in the area. I was living in the Maryland area at the time. I attempted to start myself and some other people tried to start a high school that was a low cost, affordable high school. And we struggled very mightily to get it off the ground. And so what was it called? It was called the National Tour Academy. And that's okay. what it was called. And we never got it off the ground, but it was the idea that was the concept was to try to have a low cost model of tuition. And if we could tackle it there, we sort of cobble form, we could tackle on the K through eight. And we didn't get it off the ground, but someone mentioned to me that I had a passion for Jewish education. I actually worked as a teacher's assistant in the Torah School of Greater Washington also. Oh, um, I, I worked there as a teacher. Yeah. So I was very passionate about education. And someone mentioned to me, and passing in school, why don't you marry your passion for education with government funding? Because I have a background. I worked in Congress for about four years mm-hmm. and I worked as a lobbyist as well. So that's what sort of sparked my interest in this. And so in 2010, 2011, I was working with the OU and at the OU, there was a lot of support and encouragement to try to do something post 2008. And that really sparked the interest and idea in trying to start and mount something that had never been attempted before, which was to try to galvanize the community, all communities, if we could, and have a single issue advocacy group for yeshiva and Jewish education. There'd be many efforts to do this, but the idea was to try to do it in a singular way. What AARP does for seniors, what APAC does for Israel, and what the NRA does for gun rights. You know, we were trying to do that in terms of our work for yeshivas and day schools. It's really about showing up at the end of the day when it comes to politics. 92% of education funding comes out of local and state government. And so Mm -hmm. we focus very heavily on trying to get 
not tens of people there, but hundreds and thousands of people and show up there, showing up at the polls. The Jewish community votes, the Fung community votes about a 20 to 30% clip, which is in line with the rest of the population. We try to get mm-hmm. it up to 50, 60, 70% of voting. Right, that uh, makes a big difference. And showing up in the public sphere, which is building a, an operation which can impact the funding so that people understand basic facts. Like, for example, in New York City, there are more yeshivas and day schools than there are charter school kids. In Baltimore, you know, the average public school child is probably receiving $20,000 per child. But the fact that a super majority of our schools have kids on scholarship, you know, those showing up in the public space at the polls and in your state capitals are really instrumental in us having success. And we did have success with those mechanisms and techniques. The biggest success we had, I was in Philadelphia yesterday. And in Philadelphia, they receive approximately 60% of the kids receive funding in Philadelphia on scholarship paid for by the state. Schools are receiving seven figure numbers. There's one school I was at $2 million they received from the government. Last week, I was, in, I was in Florida, and the Florida parents have been talking about the fact that 50% of the kids are in scholarship in Florida. I was at a school in South Florida that told me that they only have to provide 22 families a scholarship now because of the government putting money in. And that's just the tax credit programs. In New Jersey, there's a program that pays for the secular teachers, the Hall teachers, to when they're done with this, their day in public schools at 2, 2.30. They go into the yeshivas and day schools and teach. And so that's been provided about 25, 26 teachers have been teaching that in the New Jersey school. And in New York, the state is reimbursing yeshivas and day schools for the cost of their science, technology, engineering, and math teachers, literally reimbursing them with schools. Basak was getting upwards of three, four, five hundred thousand dollars $500,000. So we're very, very proud of that. In addition to the fact that we've gotten security money, not just for people's schools, but also including for overnight camps in New York and Pennsylvania as well. That's pretty amazing. That must have been a lot of work. It's not as much work as you think because we have the secret to the success is galvanizing your listeners and people in each and every one of the communities. Right. If it's not more litwack or about individuals on my team, it would have failed because that's not what the elected officials want to see. We can't sit there and say we have 100,000 kids and then not show up at the polls or not at the state capitals. We have to really demonstrate that we're actually doing that. And so it wasn't as much work as people envision. How can we achieve that goal for our community? The Jewish education in America is approximately $2 billion enterprise. And we believe that the way to hit that is to have government funding play a very serious role, but also to keep our fundraising up in a very serious role. And yes, to have responsibility for people paying tuition as well. I don't think you can sit there and say the community should be paying for it, the government should be paying for it entirely, when as parents, we have a lot of needs and issues and growing things we want in our schools as we should. Right. And there's only so much government involvement we want. When I started teaching, I taught in Manchester, England in a from Base Yaakov school that was essentially a government funded private school. So no one paid tuition there. And it was really nice. You know, the school building was really nice and all that. But the problem was that the government was way too involved. They would come in for surprise visits. They needed to oversee all the secular studies. They were like so insanely on top. They have this organization in England called Ofsted. And everyone like shivers at the name because they come and they'll just rip the place to pieces and tell them what they're doing wrong. And it got to the point where for some reason they decided to kick out the principal. It was some like, just from what I heard, it was some just like compliance reason. And I know what the teachers went through. So, I mean, it seems very obvious that you would want government intervention on the one hand, but on the other hand, 
it's kind of scary letting the government in because there are strings attached. They want control there. Have you seen that? I think there's two types of government programs that can be implemented. There's government programs which can be about intrusion. There's government programs that are very dangerous and can be about getting involved in the actual chinef or getting involved in the actual oversight of the schools. And I think you want to avoid those. And there's government funding where literally we and our coalition partners have written the laws and in that have created safeguards and created a prevention of that. So for example, when you talk about a security guard in front of a school, you're not going to have that issue. Or when you talk about necessarily transportation or other things like that, but there's always issues around those things. Either one of those government programs demand that we take politics seriously and we take showing up seriously and being engaged seriously because either way you want to have a seat at the table because otherwise you and your issues are going to be on the menu so that's how we view these types of things but we do them obviously in consultation with the community and the community a community rebundant and we do it in consultation with schools and things like that but yeah i think that there's always a concern there and i think that the when you look at government programs, I think that's always something people have to be aware of because there's no such thing as simply we're going to give you a check and we're not going to ask any questions. So that's just not the case in any government program. And so I think there is that duality and safeguards have to be created and due diligence has to be done and things like that. But at the same time, the programs in America, when you're looking at Pennsylvania or Florida or programs like in Ohio or Illinois or things like that, these programs have been wildly successful by preserving the integrity and ability for the schools to thrive. I also think that when we're talking about a five, six, seven thousand dollar program compared to what the state spending, it's uh, night and day. Yeah. Oh, totally, totally. So, how does the government funding trickle down to parents? For example, you have a government fund that helps with STEM material. You have a government fund that will pay for teachers. So, the school, let's say, has a budget of you know, $3 million, I'm just putting out a number, and they have one of their expenses covered, right? So they only have to fundraise, let's say, $1 million instead of $1.2 million. So how does that savings trickle down from the school to the parents? No, there's two, look, there's two types of programs. There's the programs I mentioned in place, there are places like cash credits and voucher programs, and those programs, for the most part, are you'll tweet to parents in those areas, and they're paying less tuition when they move there than they paid in the New York, New Jersey area. In the New York, New Jersey area, I don't think the funding has gotten to the point where tuition is being reduced, perhaps tuition is being stable or things like that, but I do think that the services that many are receiving are invaluable, and I think those benefits are invaluable. So, for example, in Florida, they don't have busing, but in New York, New Jersey, they do have busing. I know in Baltimore, they don't have busing. They don't. And so I think if Baltimore were to receive busing, Baltimore parents would be through the moon. Whereas in New York, New Jersey, the parents say, well, I want to receive X, Y, and Z on top of that. I think sometimes there's a tendency to not appreciate those things. People are looking at the tuition bottom line as opposed to the services they often receive. But that being said, I do think parents have a right to those services plus an affordable cost. And I think it requires the amounts getting to the point like they are in Pennsylvania and Florida. Now, that being said, the benefits of parents are receiving. So in New Jersey, for example, they don't pay out of pocket costs for OT and PT and pulling all those things that I know in Maryland, for example, they pay out of pocket costs for those. So I just think there's a lot of those things that are not reflected necessarily on the tuition line, but parents would have to, if they went to another state, they'd see they have to pay out of pocket. I remember when I lived in Maryland and I had to pay out of pocket for busing, whereas I moved to Jersey, it was free. When I moved in Maryland, I had to pay out of pocket for the special services. When I lived in New Jersey, they're free. So I think that those are the types of things that people have to understand and appreciate parents that it's, we're talking about a safe, affordable, quality school to add something to parents receiving the services that they're entitled as well. So I think all those things have to be considered in addition to the 
tuition bottom line. But I will say that schools have an absolute responsibility to take these dollars and do something with them and show the parents what they're using the money for, because the parents are the ones advocating for them. The parents are the taxpayers. And I don't, I think there are examples of schools doing that in a great way. And I think there are examples of schools doing it in a very poor way. Yeah. Transparency like that. Yeah. Totally hear that. What else can we do besides have government funding? Because I don't think that our schools are going to be 100% funded by the government or funded until the point that tuition is really affordable. Like let's say tuition was $3,000. So that's like a great per kid per year. That would be great. But I don't necessarily see that the government's going to get us there that quickly. So what else do you see that we could put in place? So when you have a company and you have a budget within the company, you have two choices to make, figure out how to stabilize costs and generate more revenue and profits. Very two, you said yourself, you're an education consultant. So for yourself, you have to either bring clients in who are going to pay you, right? So bring more revenue in, or you have to cut things. So for example, perhaps you cut office equipment or you cut someone who's working with you and things like that. Those are the two choices. When we look at that from an educational perspective, We know that the cutting is not what we're going to do. We don't believe, I know some parents do believe, but I don't believe that. I think it's not, it's not. Schools have tried it. It doesn't work. Yeah. Public schools and charter schools cost anywhere from 15 to $20,000 or more. There's no way around it. I need to believe you're going to do it for a lot less than that. And again, we have the Lamudia Code part on top of that. So after we look at that and we examine that, the cutting costs are not there. Then it's just about increasing revenue. And there's only three ways you're going to increase revenue. You're going to fundraise more from the community, right? Mm Mm-hmm create a, a major endowment or an environment of major endowment and get donors who you can pull them down money off, which is what a number of schools have done, or you're going to get the government to fund to, to fund uh, and, and put funding in. The government is the only solution where money doesn't fundraise from the community. It's the only solution where money doesn't come into the community. That being said, I do think it's reasonable to say to the entirety of the community in Baltimore, for example, let's say that there's 20,000 from Jews in Baltimore. Let's say that that's an estimate, maybe it's more. If every one of those from Jews were to give every year $1,000 to the educational system in Baltimore, that would be a tremendous amount of money that would probably help fund the schools. Right. So that thought's been floating around. And I know specifically of an accountant that, you know, laid out a whole plan for that. But here's the thing, like, let's say you have people who just finished paying tuition for seven kids for 20, 30 years, whatever it is. And now they have to pay more. Now they have to give this, you know, give $1,000 a year. I could see a lot of people having resistance to that. Yeah, 100%. People always have resistance to it. But if it's framed correctly, look, imagine a scenario where with Tonka Shabbos, people basically said, well, that's not my problem. Imagine a scenario where community members said that when someone's nifter, that's not the community, that's not community's problem. They have to pay for it and deal with it. We don't deal, like, I mean, like, imagine if Hever, Hever Kadisha work like that. Imagine if Atsala work like that. Like, imagine... Right. If Chavayim work like that or Shomer, like that's not the way these community institutions work. They work from a mentality that we're all in this together. It's a community institution. Only schools and education in our community do behave in a manner where it's basically a service and it is, it is a paid service, like you're going to the grocery store, you're going to the butcher or something like that. And until that mentality shifts within the community, I agree with you, people aren't going to want to do it. Right now, people are counting down to they don't have to do it anymore and then they move on with their lives and they give other things. But it's a mistake. And so I do believe that it is something, I think that if you go into communities and you, you know, you never, it's never a good idea. I do a lot of fundraising. It's never a good idea to look at a donor's pocket, they say. But when you go to communities and you were to go, I venture to say that if you were to go to any community in the firm world and you were to do an accounting of where their fundraising dollars go, 
I would say the education is probably not number one on the list. It's probably number two or three or four. It could be five and six in some of the communities because there's all these other things that we're raising money for and all these other charitable things that we're doing. And so I think that there does have to be a little bit of more of a reckoning and understanding that education costs money. They're right now, that the mentality within the community is that the problem exists because the schools are wasting money or the problem exists because the schools haven't figured out as opposed to looking at it and saying, wow, this is something we as a community have to fund. And there's two ways we can fund it. We can either each individually give money for life to it and we can vote and we can engage in that process as well. So I think when you look at it from that perspective, you gain greater insight into how this whole thing could be funded and done as opposed to looking at this as a slash and burn, you know, throw the model out, which has been serving us and has been producing incredible members of the community for, I don't know, eight decades. Yeah. yeah. Eight decades just in America. Something like that, maybe longer. Yeah. About, yeah. There's the community responsibility and that's one aspect of it. And then there's also the business aspect of it, which is more the school's responsibility. That makes sense? Yeah, I think that the business aspect of things makes a lot of sense, but those things come with increases in price that the average parent doesn't want to pay. And the parents, and this is the challenge of this whole discussion, which is, so I know schools that have very sophisticated CFO and accounting operations and the kind of reports and accountability that parents demand. They cost more. Like, that's the way this works. So I know schools that have the kind of after-school programs that parents demand. They cost more. I know schools that have less kids in the class. They cost more. So like, that's the way this works. It's not that complicated, but parents are walking in their schools and demand something that is not borne by the cost many times. And when you look at the cost, the costs are reliant upon parents getting involved in PTOs or other organizations, parental organizations. It's reliant upon parents giving more money from a fundraising perspective, helping the school raise more money. And it's reliant upon the patients of the school, even the most expensive yeshivas and day schools in the country rely upon these things. Because when you look at an independent school in America and the private schools in America, they're spending upwards of $30,000, dollars $50,000 to do this. And again, you know, in New York City, $27,700 to educate a child. So you go to a private school, they're going to be, could you imagine if we spent $27,700 on the average yeshiva day school kid? People yeah. would be amazed and they'd be incredible. And you, they want, yeah, you'd have your CFO and you have all these other things that you want. You'd probably have an incredible gym and we'd be teaching archery and all kinds of other interesting things. And our parents, so choose, but they cost $27,700. So like, it's just important for parents to understand this and recognize this. And I think too often they don't because that cost hits them and they have total blindness when after the cost. But the schools do a very poor job in many situations of communicating and having parents understand the cost. So the parents in the school and the schools have to meet and understand what this whole product is that we call Jewish education in America for us to start to resolve this issue. Because I really believe that when schools hear the concerns of the parents and the parents hear the concerns of the schools, there's great things. Right now, I don't think that's anything about happening. I think the, before you even get to the tuition crisis in our community and begin to discuss it, we need to discuss the communication crisis that allows us to resolve these issues. Because there's a communication crisis first that doesn't allow us to even sit down and have rational discussions around these things. That's right. That's absolutely true. And what's coming to mind is I recently had a conversation with the executive of a very, very large school, and he was telling me how tuition is anywhere from, let's say, starting from preschool. It's like $7,000 goes up to like $13,000, $15,000 for high school. And he was like, you know, that's really not a lot compared to other schools. And I've done all my research and yeah, I mean, schools cost any cost on average, like we're saying, $20,000, $30,000. So I think that 
he had a really, really valid point there. I just wish, like you were saying, yeah, communication, very, very, very important. If parents would realize, like, even though you are totally, this is a humongous cost, this might be more than your mortgage, but we are keeping costs down like this, like that, and the other thing. And also something that's very important, and couples obviously have to do this when they budget, is say, okay, we have this amount of money, so what can go? What do we absolutely need and what are we not paying for? So I think it's very important to include the parents in that conversation from like a PR perspective. And also it would be great if the schools got feedback from parents because parents think these things anyway, either the school knows about it or not, but it's helpful if there's a communication piece, like you were saying. Absolutely invaluable. Yeah, yeah. I do think that that is very important. 100%. With that and people's participation and some aftas and siyata jishmaya will be in great shape. Yeah, yeah. And I've spoken to parents who have said that if they're happy with their child's education, if they're satisfied, they're happy to pay the tuition. So I think that this communication piece will go a long way. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Sure. My pleasure. Thanks. Next, I spoke with Rabbi Yaakov Nussbaum, a business consultant. I began by asking him what schools can do to create a more solid foundation by having a healthy working budget. I do believe that more effort has to be expended and invested before a school opens to set it up for financial stability. And that means that you got to make budgets that forecast out until you're going to reach that point where the school has reached its target numbers. Like, for instance, I sat with someone who was opening a high school, mm-hmm. and we ran the numbers. He's going to have 24 students in ninth grade, 24 in 10th grade. These were his numbers. And then we started running what he could expect in tuition. And then, obviously, the initial outlay was a very large deficit. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah, but once we get, you know, once we fill up, the overhead will stay the same and yada yada, but it turned out as we ran the numbers in the spreadsheet, there's always going to be a deficit because there's certain, you know, once we started researching and that's nowadays because the firm world has expanded so much, this get exact numbers on what food service is going to cost you and per student, not per student, and maintenance and all that. So you're able to really do a lot better forecasting nowadays. And then identifying, okay, what's going to be my running deficit mm-hmm. after the programs, whatever it is. Okay, and then you can get a lot of data. So people really need to spend time beforehand to realize, to know what is going to be their deficit. And then comes the hard part. You really have to have a plan, and that plan will involve some fundraising. You have to be realistic and say, well, what can, what kind of fundraising can we expect to do? It's going to be me, it's going to be a fundraiser, but that's not so, what's that going to cost, what's it going to bring in? And then, if you're still stuck, you got to then say, okay, this is not going to work, practically, then you got to go out and enroll other people, which means not to enroll students, but you got to go enroll people that buy into your vision of what the school is and are willing to, yeah, especially when you come to them with a plan and say, this is year one, this is year two, this is year three, year four, year five. So we're going to have X amount of debt, but then we're going to have a debt, ongoing deficit of $400,000. And the question is, you know, I'm looking for five people that could join me in raising that kind of money. Or 
we're going to work on it. You know, that's not regular. But the point is, the amount of time that she put in before starting the school to ensure that it's financially sound is really where a lot of people put that in. Or just kind of jump in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or the tendency of people is to budget optimistically. Mm-hmm. That's a tendency. And that's a, you really gotta, the budgeting optimistic is really gets a lot of people in trouble. And if they would just make sure to show their numbers to other people that don't have a stake in it, people are already down that road and say, listen, how realistic is this? And not to get discouraged, because if you believe in this idea, you want to open a new boys high school for boys that are on the highest spectrum of autism, they could learn Gemara, whatever your thing is. If you believe it, there's a lot of money in place, so you should be able to inspire other people to buy into it too. But the question then is, how many people do you need to join you in order to make it financially feasible? Right, okay. And so that's a great way to start. But in terms of schools in the long term, I see schools that were around for 50, 75, 100 years that are still soliciting donations and all that. How can schools get off of that I'm being supported mindset and shift to a more established approach? That's not a simple question because it's not a business. And that depends on the community. And it's always, this has always been like, it's gotta be subsidized. We don't, we don't run schools based just on what the parents pay tuition. That's it. The community has to provide proper education to, to the community members. And the whole community's gotta share in that. So. It's easy to say that, but what does that mean? That means that you don't call donations, but that, that's called donations. In other words, you gotta go to the wider community. And say, just like we need to have a Hatzalah or whatever, a time of Shabbos, we need to have schools. Same way you're okay with Hatzalah collecting money for its existence, the school really, it's incumbent of the entire community to provide for the education of the whole community. Okay. Well, what do you think about something like an endowment that would help schools to be more financially sustainable? Because the scope of what a school's expenses and what they need to provide and all that really is compared to, let's say, Bikar Cholim or whatever. I mean, I don't know if it's much greater, but it would seem to me to be like a lot of money. Something that they should okay. be. What, so what's your thought about endowments? It's a good idea. Endowments is a good long-term, you know, approach to take. Just you have to realize that it's a long, long, long-term project. True, but if someone would have done it 50 years ago, we would be in a very different place now. Okay, so if you want to discuss what schools could do for 50 years from now, good question. I and mean, we hope a shield will be here by then, so I'm not mm-hmm. sure. Practically, it's a good thing to do endowments, but for most schools, it's a good thing to do. But as far as time invested into it for now, I'm not sure about that. I have to speak to people that have tried it, and I don't know if that's such a for newer schools to start working on endowments. Well, how about this? How about schools, instead of raising a ton of money to buy a building that will last 50, 100 years, why don't they just use trailers? It's cheaper, and that way they don't have to worry about it in 50 years. Uh, here, I'm not sure if that's being responsible to the children. I don't know if you're, filling, I don't know if you're fulfilling the obligations to the children. A trailer is not a proper structure. It doesn't have that same 
usually trailers can't convey the sense of space and you know it's conducive to learning. We have to provide proper education to our community members. Mm-hmm. How do we do that? So I think that the shift table to set up schools and trailers uh, just doesn't resonate. Most people I know struggle with tuition. So if we could change things in the same way that a school helps kids to learn properly, having a better solution for tuition rather than, you know, charging parents a bomb would help in the long run with education to be a more conducive thing. That way, when you have a school that's sustainable, you can pay teachers better. You can have more professional development. You can pay for better materials. You can do things in a more educationally sound way. So so how do you think schools can model themselves in order to be more successful as businesses? Because they are businesses. So I think they just have to really, a lot more planning beforehand. And then once they're running, it should be a collaborative effort to ensure that we're accessing all resources that we could possibly access. It should be collaboratively to make sure that get a lot of stakeholders involved and to see, you know, what can we do to get more resources so that we could maximize the resources that we have and lower the burden on parents. Next, I called a religious Christian school that has a very unique way of funding private high school education. They actually have branches all over the U.S., and they've been wildly successful. This network of schools only opened around a decade and a half ago. They have a corporate internship program where high school students work for a business of their choice one day a week, which partially funds their tuition. Um, the corporate internship program, all of our students are participants in this program. Mm-hmm. And so they have one day a week that they're going to work. They're actually working 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. It's a, a full work day. Um, they complete tasks um, that their supervisors provide or assign to them. In return, as they're working, their supervisors and companies that they're working for are paying about half of their tuition. So that's the way that we're able to, you know, have our students attend here, even though they may not be able to afford the full tuition. The corporate sponsors are paying for about half of their tuition. The other portion of their tuition, each student has like a benefactor or donor. A lot of our students have scholarships as well. Wow. And so that allows them to be able to attend the school and it works out where most of our families are only paying roughly a thousand dollars a year rather than the full sixteen thousand that it takes to actually fund each student's position and so that's kind of the model there and that's the briefest way that i can put it after that conversation i called the ron clark academy the ron clark academy is a top tier private school that serves many underprivileged students in the atlanta area You've probably heard about the school, which has become famous for its groundbreaking methods of teaching. In fact, it's become so famous that it attracts educators from all over the world for its one-of-a-kind immersive professional development programs. The programs are so successful that they almost fully fund the school and they completely fund student scholarships. I spoke with Troy Kemp, the Director of Strategic Initiatives and Partnerships at the Ron Clark Academy. Our school, 93% of our operating budget comes from educator training. And there are donors that support teachers. You know, Coca-Cola may support, you know, 100 teachers coming to training. You know, they donate to us and it's earmarked money. Or people will just pay, you know, all those dollars go towards scholarships for our kids to attend our school. Having some sort of for-profit model 
some for-profit business that can fund the nonprofit part of the business is a mind-blowing idea. And I think that there are many applications, not necessarily, you know, another school can't necessarily do professional development on the level that the Ron Clark Academy does. But let's say if they wanted to open up like extracurricular program, a dance school. What this model has done is allowed us to be neat blind in terms of enrollment, Mm -hmm. right? We don't have to look at the tuition. We're not tuition is only going to be a small fraction of our operating budget. So we don't have to be as tuition dependent as other schools. And so in terms of the big picture, how is this impacting? One is providing access to students where you don't have to look at the student's need to say we have to take a certain amount of students who can pay a certain amount of tuition mm. in order to make our turn the lights on at our school. You know, technically, we could have any single kid come here whose parents make under $30,000 and they might pay $10 a month to attend school. That's something we have kids that pay as little as $20 a month to be at school. And, you know, this tuition is 18000 but I'm sure that our the experience is over thirty. And so, again, you know, to have a family that can pay $10 a, a month for their child to, to come to school and they don't have to, you know, we provide the books and the iPads and, you know, we don't have books. We use iPads and we, you know, custom materials, but uniforms, the trips, all those things all included when they come, the meals, everything else, that changes your life. Oh, it for sure. A, it takes a burden off of a parent whose child who wants to attend. But again, being able to open our school and allow educators, it's only educated training that has live in-classroom observations. Here's the biggest challenge. I used to work at a private school in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest challenges, we always tried to admit the kids that were the best fit for the school. In the back of your mind, you knew you had to meet budget somehow. Right. So you didn't select kids just because some people can pay and some people couldn't. But when you went out to do admissions, you knew if you're enough people who are mission appropriate for your school, who could pay or pay enough, you weren't going to meet budget. Mm-hmm. That's just the fact. I taught the schools when I did a presentation. I said, imagine if your school was free for everybody. Who would be your target audience? Would your enrollment look different if kids didn't have to pay tuition, if it was your school was completely funded? And I guarantee you, there isn't a school in the country that it wouldn't be different. This is why the colleges and so forth that have these billion-dollar endowments and so forth they have the flexibility to say, you know, it doesn't matter what your family's uh, tax return says or if they file it all. If you're the kid that fits my school, then you're going to enroll you. And I think for a lot of independent schools, particularly the ones that don't have endowments, they are so tuition for like they're what 90 something percent of their operating budget comes from tuition mm-hmm. or, or maybe more than that. They don't have the endowments to offset. They may not have the fund ready to prison to offset. So schools are in a tough spot. If they don't have another way to generate revenue. But do people grant more grace to the families that can afford tuition? They're not. For here, everybody's treated the same because the tuition doesn't drive the bus. It's one of those things that it's nice to have, but it's not need to have it. Right, right. It wasn't built on that model. It does contribute some, you know, tuition when you add it all up. It doesn't even compare in any way to what traditional private or independent schools have, the burden they have. We basically make our own money here, if you would. Wow. Yeah, it's like a sustainable way to have a nonprofit. What an idea. Right, right. You know, when I was at my previous school, that was the biggest thing when you look at national NAIS and so forth. They were like, hey, how do we come up with alternative revenue streams? Can we rent out our facility? Can we offer services to community? Can we do all these things? But if you look at it, the 
amount of money. You know, if you have a school with a $20 million operating budget, how in the world are they going to generate $20 million from renting out their football field and their gyms and so forth? It just can't. There's no real way to create a substantial, you know, maybe you make a million dollars in summer programs or $2 million in summer programs. I mean, some schools have tennis academies, you know, things like that that generate other revenue. But outside of offering an academy, that's just literally, I know school has a soccer academy and it generates quite a bit of revenue. I've been in this game for a minute. I mean, I'm here. My background is in independent school leadership as well. So I've been in the boardroom. I was the dean of admission and associate head of school at McCauley School. And I was in the trenches with these tough conversations. And, you know, on a national level, working with SSS, which was the school and student services. How did they calculate financial aid, all that stuff? And how do we make schools more affordable? You know, the only way you're going to do it is you have to find other revenue streams. You have to find other revenue streams. You're not going to lower your benefits. Use technology to be able to scale something in such that you don't need the bodies, right? So use a certain kind of technology in your administrative offices. You may not need a full-time employee, but you can invest it in technology. And maybe that takes away a $50,000 job that really is 60 or 65000 when you look at the 40% fringe rate when it comes to benefits. Mm-hmm. Right? People don't realize that it's not the salary, it's the benefits. Or maybe you take a part time person instead of a full time person, you don't have to deal with the benefits. So you lower your budget. Right. Right. It's very interesting. The private schools I've been working with are Orthodox Jewish private schools. And they're very interesting because even students whose parents can't pay tuition, the school feels an obligation to accept them because it's a religious school. So that's real difficulty these schools are coming up with where well you know what they ended up with a huge enrollment and they're basically discount tuition right yeah because they look at that they say well i can fill that seat but i'm speaking as a person that's seen different schools so i'm talking about big picture but i do know that you're right the hardest thing is that you know from your mission that you need to accept certain students but from your budget it's like what are we going to do basically you discount this tuition and as long as Bringing those extra students doesn't cause you to have to add staff. It doesn't add expenses other than the food and the toilets they flush. Mm-hmm. It's just true, right? Because the lights are going to come on in the classroom regardless. You put one more desk in the room. As long as it's not forcing you to add a full-time employee in any way, that's where your capacity line is. Right, right. Right? But right. some schools go past that. and they or When they add people, they add expenses. And now, all of a sudden, their tuition has to go up or something. Right. I'm sure I'm leaving you with a lot to think about, and you might have a lot to say about this topic. Feel free to email me at institutiontoinspiration at gmail.com with your thoughts. That's it for part two. Subscribe to my podcast, and I hope you'll join me in future episodes. Thanks for listening to the Institution to Inspiration Education Show.